0: You're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily jashinsky Culture Editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at federalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. Make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. I'm so excited about today's guest. We're talking to Homer Hickam. He's author of the new book, Don't Blow Yourself Up, The Further True Adventures and Travails of the Rocket Boy of October Sky. Hickam is the New York Times best number one best-selling author of 19 books, including Rocket Boys, which became the major motion picture, October Sky, which I'm sure many of you remember, starring Jake Gyllenhaal as Homer, and and Homer, welcome so much to the program today.
1: Well, thank you, Emily. It's great to be with you. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, I'm outside uh, doing this, so uh, traffic noises, cats, uh, (laughs) sunlight, everything (laughs) is liable to change here, but we're going to do our best. (laughs)
0: <laughs> no, this is fantastic. Um, so, so excited about this interview. The book is excellent. I can't recommend it enough. I want to start off just by reading an excerpt from the introduction, actually, that I think gives this very sort of sweeping overview of the book, uh, which is in and of itself an overview of a very sweeping and adventure-filled life. Homer writes, I went to a tough engineering military school where I famously built a cannon and then I fought in a war and then became a scuba instructor, <laughs> dived on some deep shipwrecks and unraveled the history of a giant battle along the American coasts along the way I worked for NASA and then I wrote a famous book had a movie made that was based on it and did some other things more importantly I had a lot of great friends during all of it and a few enemies too such things happen in a long life if that sounds interesting to you which I'm sure it does you should check out the book because that's a great summary that really captures it um Homer tell us why you wanted to write this book right now
1: yeah I mean uh, generally when you have a Big bestseller like Rocket Boys, and then a movie made out of the book uh, October Sky. You want to just come out with the sequel, everything that happened since, right away. But I had a feeling that perhaps that was not a really good idea. That um, in fact the um, th- there a myth kind of sprung up about about that boy uh, in Rocket Boys and October Sky. That and and that's what it says at the end of the film. Homer Hickam went on and worked for NASA and he trained NASA astronauts and then it just that's it. You know, and it's like, okay, that's a really, really good ending to this story. Uh, So I just thought I'll leave that alone. And also I was waiting for um, just waiting for a little time and cushion to pass to see what was actually going to happen uh, with this story and everything. So now it's been 20. One year uh, since um, Rocket Boys came out and the movie was made, and uh, I just have have the sense that now it's okay, that I can go ahead and tell the whole rest of the story, and um, it won't hurt anybody's feelings, and it won't impact Rocket Boys at all, it's still in hardcover after all these years, which is, is almost just unknown for a book. So I don't think I can hurt it. And uh, I did have a lot more stories to tell. Uh, so um, and, and, and people were writing me all the time. Okay, so what really happened? We understand you didn't work for NASA till you were 38 years old. What did you do in between? <laughs> <You know? laughs> and it was like, well, I did some other things. So um, I thought now was a good time to write it.
0: No, not much. You, were, you seemed pretty relaxed and chilled in the, the years <laughs> the years in between. Yeah, uh, not uh, much. <laughs> uh, no, of course, that's, that's not true at all, because uh, as Homer wrote in the, the excerpt that you just heard about, he did a whole lot in those, those years in between that time. And I actually, Homer, also wanted to ask you about the title, which I think works on, on multiple levels and probably sounds familiar to people who read Rocket Boys and saw October Sky. Why did you choose Don't Blow Yourself Up as the title of this one?
1: Yeah, I I did that deliberately. It's kind of an iconic um, uh, quote from Rocket Boys. It's what my mom told me when I told her I'm going to build a rocket, you know, in Rocket Boys. um, She leaned across the kitchen table and said, well, don't blow yourself up. And I took that as permission uh, not to blow myself up, but to start building rockets. And then I almost did blow myself up. And then over the years, she never forgot that as I built that big cannon down at Virginia Tech. When I when I started building that big thing down there, um, because we didn't have one, and our arch rival Virginia Military Institute did. Um, she 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 said, "Oh my gosh, this time you really are going to blow yourself." Up. <laughs> didn't I tell you not to blow yourself? Up? So <laughs> I thought, you know what? There is kind of a connection here. I mean, in Vietnam, I did kind of get blown up and I did get blown up actually. And, um, and then over the years, I, you know, diving on these German U-boats to write about them, write about the history of that big battle off the coast during World War II. I was down amongst live ordnance, 88 millimeter shells, live torpedoes and so on. And I made a mistake of telling my mom, you know, (laughs) what i was doing so i got the didn't i tell you not to blow yourself up line again and then when i started writing this i thought you know what that that kind of that quote kind of kind of connects uh, all these little pieces together so so and and the publisher liked it and and so so there you go
0: so your mom i imagine was just persistently exasperated with your your adventurous spirit
1: uh yeah yeah i mean really uh it's funny the Though but my mom did enjoy the success of rocket boys and um and then the movie, especially uh in that she got to go um on set uh mm-hmm. during some of the filming and I was hired as a consultant, and I write about this in the new book and uh, so mom got to go over and, uh, and and sit. And as far as she was concerned, the the whole movie was was just about her. And uh, so um, <laughs> I but mom over the years had kind of lost a few of her filters. You know, she was well into her 90s by then. And so um, I brought over Natalie Kennedy, the wonderful actor who played her in the movie. And I said, Mom, I want you to meet uh, Natalie Kennedy. She's playing you and poor Natalie. Uh, they filmed it in Tennessee during the middle of the winter and they were pretending it was spring or so. they were actually out painting the leaves, you know, different color. <laughs> <laughs> and gluing on leaves to the tree. And so there's Natalie in her little light frock, little house dress, and it's like freezing cold. Mom's all bundled up and everything. So I bring Natalie over and um, her teeth are chattering and, and uh, I said, Mom, here's Natalie. a candidate. She's playing you in the movie. And Mom took a long look at her and she said, Well, I was hoping for Kathy Bates, but I guess you do. <laughs> And that's amazing. Natalie was so gracious, you know. (laughs) That's fantastic (laughs) about the whole thing. Yeah. (laughs)
0: <laughs> that's a fantastic story. I, I want to get into more of that, of course, because I think something this book really does is tell the story of the American dream in a way that it it existed. And I'm curious to get your take on whether you think it, it still exists in that form and, and go into that. But I, I sort of want to walk through the book a little bit. You start with your time um, at Virginia Tech, which is really, really interesting. Um, and you you mentioned the canon. Uh, the, that's a, an important part of your time at Virginia Tech. Tell us, uh, especially for all the Hokie fans out there, about about the cannon um, and what it's like to go back and, and see it today.
1: Yeah, I was just there a couple of weeks ago, as a matter of fact, for Veterans Day. And they celebrated the the cannon all day long and and sort of kind of me, you know, <laughs> but mostly the cannon. Um, so the cannon came about uh, in the early 1960s, the um, uh, I, I was a cadet at Virginia Tech and our big rival was VMI, Virginia Military Institute, and they had this, uh, we played them every Thanksgiving. It was a military classic of the South. It was a really, really big deal. It was in Roanoke, Virginia. We caught a train called the Huckleberry from Blacksburg to to Roanoke, the whole cadet corps, about 4,000 cadets, and they had, they had like 1,500 cadets, and we would March through through Roanoke, and it was a huge deal and so but v m I had this little cannon they called it the Little John, and they would drag it out, and they would fire it, boom, you know, and then they they would talk to us across the field where's your cannon where's your cannon and it's like you know. Yeah, where is our cannon? So <laughs> a few of us cadets decided, well, by golly, we're going to build our own cannon. We went to the administration and they said, no way, <laughs> no way. Uh, you're not going to do that. And we, so we did it anyway. And, and long story short, um, we gathered in the materials to build this thing, figured out how to build it. I went over to the industrial engineering department and uh, they were willing to s- sneak around and help us build it. And uh, so we built this giant cannon part of the brass came out of my dad's coal mine by the way and uh so the big day came 1963 uh thanksgiving and vmi brought out their little cannon and they fired it and they went where's your cannon where's your cannon and so uh butch harper who was one of the other cadets who, who helped me build it and he was in the regimental command he said all right all right sunny as i was called yeah it's time to fire ours so but make it the biggest charge you can put in there so i had a really humongous monster charge (laughs) and i was like kind of reluctant but okay why not so i threw it down the barrel and um the vmi uh football team was in front they came all running over to see what was going on and they took one look and went and ran for it and skipper went off and this it was a lot more powerful than than that cannon ever ever had after that it actually reared back it weighed about 800 pounds <laughs> it, it reared back and it sent a shockwave across the field um blew all the hats off the vmi core went up into the uh into the press box cracked the glass up there there was a stunned silence for a moment and then after my ears stopped ringing, I heard this chant from the corps behind me. Here's our cannon, here's our cannon. <laughs> so, so ever since the, the Skipper, as we called it, became an iconic uh, uh, part of Virginia Tech, it's retired now. They've got a real professional cannon in there now, the Skipper too. But uh, yeah, that's the story of the Skipper.
0: So one of your subheadings in the section of the book about your time at Virginia Tech is you can't go home again, even when you do. Can you explain (laughs) what you meant by that?
1: Well, yeah, I went back to I went back to Colwood. You know, I'm in the cadet corps now and learning a lot of new things, a lot of new friends and so on. And um, so, yeah, I went back to Colwood and expecting, hoping to, for it to be the way that i remembered but already my mom was starting to draw away draw away from uh from the town a lot more than she ever did and wanting to move to myrtle beach and putting pressure on my dad to leave the coal mine which he wasn't willing to do so that tension uh was in there uh, that um, that i knew mom wasn't going to be around that much longer i mean they never they, they just separated in distance. And ultimately my my dad did retire and go live with her in Myrtle beach, but she was just bound and determined to get out of Colwood. All my friends were gone. Um, all my high school buddies, they were all gone either in the military or off to college or so on. Sherman, one of the rocket boys showed up later, but you know, you got this sense that, um, no, you know, you just can't, you just can't, you can go back, you can physically be there. But after that transition is made and you go off and, and, and to college or military or some other job or some other city, going back is, uh, is almost impossible. And I think, you know, ultimately that's why I wrote rocket boys. I wanted to bring Colwood as I knew it as a, as a young person uh, back to life.
0: Mm. I wanna ask uh also you you just mentioned that you, you you laughed when you said it that you got blown up in Vietnam. Uh, can you can you tell us about tell us about that experience and then I have some other questions about what you wrote um about your time in Vietnam.
1: Yeah, well, you know, um uh, I volunteered for Vietnam. I was actually stationed at Dugway Proving Ground, uh, Utah, and the Army said I could stay there. But I had um, a lot of training at Virginia Tech in the military, and then I had gone through basic training, AIT training, um, um, a lot of uh, OCS training. I, I was well-trained, and I just felt like that I should um, I should use that training rather than somebody else having to go over there. So I, I decided the right or wrong, uh, uh, good decision, bad decision. I, I I decided to volunteer for for Vietnam. Uh, while I was there, I spent uh, almost, almost all the time out in the field. Uh, I, I didn't I didn't. I'm a West Virginia boy. I want to be out in the country, which is not necessarily a great idea when people are shooting at you. But <laughs> I was young, you know, invulnerable as you as you tend to be. And I was out um, when I got blown up, I was actually out on Highway 19 East, which uh, is where the infamous Mangyang Pass is, where the the Viet Minh, which was the precursor for the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese Army, absolutely decimated the French Army. So it was an ambush city. And I was out there um, working on some armored uh, vehicles, some tanks and armored personnel carriers. The next thing I knew, I woke up in the 71st of AAC, uh, hospital in Pleiku. Um, never quite knew what happened. Uh, there was some thought that it was so-called friendly fire. In other words, uh, not American, but maybe South Vietnamese artillery had gotten off course a little bit. We never really knew. Something exploded. And um, so I found myself uh, in the 71st back with a lot of uh, little pieces of whatever it was went off embedded in in the front of me and. I kind of it just kind of crossed my mind that hey maybe I'm going to go home. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They gave me uh, well I was in I was kind of in and out of consciousness for a couple of days and they gave me a clean bill of health and sent me right back out again. (laughs) So so, you know uh, I I never wrote to my mom and told her what happened. I would have definitely got it didn't I tell you not to blow yourself (laughs) (laughs) out of her on that.
0: There's a bit of dialogue in the section of the book on Vietnam where you're you're talking to a colleague who says, you just said this place wasn't worth dying for. And you conclude, you know, the place you don't feel at that time is worth dying for, but the people are. W- what did you mean by that?
1: Yeah, I think that's true for most troops in combat. After a while, all the big picture goes away about, oh, you're fighting for your country. You're fighting for some idea or ideal um ultimately you you start fighting for the men and women who are around you and i've seen that any number of times uh, out of world war ii and then more recently in the long war that we had um, in iraq and afghanistan and so on um they become your brothers and so uh, you're willing to lay down your life for them and they will you know that they will for you as well so that's what it becomes and uh, definitely over in vietnam where we knew that the country really wasn't uh, behind us at all and we were getting a lot of reports back uh from from uh soldiers who would go home and then come back and tell us that um, basically people were were either ignoring you or or actually criticizing you for what was happening over there, even though, you know, we didn't have anything to do with it. It was it was the politicians who had sent us over there. And I think, you know, uh, that uh, lasted a very, very long time. It still is very true for a lot of Vietnam veterans and other veterans who have come back to an underappreciative country, if you will. But ultimately, we have each other and uh, we have to stay strong together. And one of the things that I've done over the years is um, work work with uh, Uh, Wounded Warrior organizations and um, told them about my Vietnam experience and uh, helped some of the folks, um, especially those um, psychologically still trying to come home from the war.
0: There's another uh, quote from this section of the book think is so interesting and so relevant. You write, Surely I didn't know enough, but something just didn't feel right about the entire plan to fight the war. For the first time, I began to get an inkling that maybe the people back in Washington, D.C. weren't as smart as they thought they were. That is fascinating from the time period because it's almost as though people who served in Vietnam got a preview of what, of a of a, of a sort of, or they came to a realization earlier that I think is sweeping the country more now. Uh, do you think that's true? Do you think there was something about being... In the military in the Vietnam wars, the Vietnam years that uh, gave you insight into something that a lot of people maybe didn't realize for years afterwards.
1: Yeah, I think so. I, I think for most of us Vietnam veterans, that was true. Uh, I mean, for me, I had uh, you know grown up so patriotic. And uh, one of the reasons I wanted to go into space business is I want to be I wanted to beat those mean, meany Russians, you know, <laughs> uh, and um, and and throughout my time as a cadet at Virginia Tech, we were just super, super patriotic. Never, never got political in our heads. We never really question um, what what our government was doing. But in Vietnam, I mean, all, uh, the it was just all drawn away. Uh, and we and you got the, the real picture, the raw picture, if you will, of, of a decision. Lots of decisions made back in uh, in Washington, D.C., um, that clearly uh, weren't right. And so once you have that experience, I mean, you're there on the ground and you're seeing this this nonsense that's going on. You're seeing your fellows being blown up and and uh, being wounded and horrifically so and psychologically damaged for something that clearly that has not been well thought through here. And so yeah, once you once you see that on the ground, um, then you start to understand and question. A lot of the decisions that the government makes after that, and I think that's that's very healthy. Uh, But um, I, you know, going into a bloody war is not really a good way to do that. So I think, you know, I I really think uh, civic classes need to come back uh, uh, to our students. And uh, but in that process. you do you get both sides you get okay, these are really good things the government has done. these are really things that are kind of questionable. Let's talk about it, that kind of thing. So I think you become a better citizen when you do question some of the things that the government does and um, um, and also get involved with uh, with it. I'm, I'm a little bit too old now to run for for office. I don't want to do that. But I do pay attention. (laughs) Mm -hmm.
0: So you then go into, of course, the the book is pretty chronological through your life. And you write in the the next section, looking back now, I realize I was actually completely and totally messed up. And there's not much else I can add to that, except it's so. Um, I'm going to ask you to add a little bit to it (laughs) and and walk (laughs) us through um, why you in the moment thought that you were fine. and, And you would have told people you were fine, but you actually weren't.
1: Yeah, I mean, I was functioning. I came back from Vietnam. I was functioning. I, I came back, and um, I, I was. I stayed in the army for a few more years after that, and um, and I got out. and I was a Department of Army civilian, and you know, I I uh, had relationships, and uh, I, I was just living a life. But I, I I was unmoored. I I didn't have an anchor. I I I really, you know, looking back on it, I realized I was just searching for what is what is my passion in life? Because I'd had that before, before Vietnam. I'd had it when I was a rocket boy in Colwood, West Virginia. I'd had it at Virginia Tech when I was building that cannon and studying really hard to be an engineer and so on. I'd had it. And then I'd kind of lost it. And I was just kind of wandering around in, in, in the desert, if you will, in my mind, trying to figure out uh what it was that uh, that i should do it's one of the reasons that ultimately i think scuba diving kind of saved me i I latched onto that it became a passion and i mean completely out of character in a a lot of ways you know being a boy from the hills of west virginia where there is no seashore (laughs) Uh, although my mom of course loved the loved the ocean but um once i latched onto that um uh, and that was like a decade in after after Vietnam when when that really got going. Um, I, I really had a, 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 a new passion that ultimately morphed into writing about the scuba diving and about wreck diving and so on. And also, I started just opening myself up to the world and, and going after some of the things that I thought was impossible, like working for NASA. I kept at it, kept at it, because I thought that I had some attributes with my diving and knowing all about gas laws uh, that come through diving and also computers and new computer systems I was getting involved with. Uh, it, and it turned out that, um, that when I was 38, I finally did get to work for NASA and everything just kind of clicked together. At that moment, but it took a long time before that happened.
0: What did you love so much about scuba diving at the time? What really like hooked you in?
1: Well, I, 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 that's a very good question. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I mean, I can, I can tell you that once I became a diver, of course, I loved, loved um, underwater photography. I learned, I loved the coral reefs and the, you know, the blue sea. And then I also loved uh, the uh, unraveling the history of that great, uh, conflict during uh, World War II. We have a helicopter going by right now. Um, and um, so I, I really love that. But I think it was, uh, I think it was just like, it was something so new to me. It was a, it was in a way a technical uh, a, 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 as well as a physical and a mental challenge to learn all of that. And scuba was kind of a new, uh, a new sport. Um, in in the states at that time, so it all just came together for me. Mm.
0: It it strikes me as interesting because the ocean probably feels like more of a known quantity than space does, but at the same time, it's it's also this sort of vast unknown, and it, it seems it it me- is very much. I mean,
1: um, uh, uh, when you go diving, every time you dive, even if you dive on a reef that you've dived a hundred times, you see something new, mm. and uh, so it's it's it never really gets old. And I think also becoming a scuba instructor uh, was was also a passion for me. I liked the fact that once I learned how and learned a lot about it, because I just became so passionate that I went way beyond normal, what a normal scuba diver knows about, about diving and the gas laws and, and, uh, and all of that, that's, that's technically in the regulators, how, how they all work and everything that then I could, and then also that I loved, I just loved the ocean and I, and I loved being underwater and I loved seeing all the creatures and all that. I was able as an instructor to pass that passion along to my students. Mm-hmm. So that was good for me and it was good for them as well.
0: No, mm. Now, it's interesting that you you had this experience in Vietnam and then returned really to service in NASA, that you had your patriotism tested and then went back into an institution of the government. Tell us about your experience at NASA, why you wanted to go there um, and, you know, if it how, how it helped you as a person.
1: Yeah, well, of course, I still had that passion. I mean, I could um, I could every once in a while just. Take all of all of that that happened in Vietnam and everywhere else and just kind of put that aside and become little Sonny Hickam back in Colwood, West Virginia. I mean, it's like it's really I mean, the first astronaut that that I met working for NASA was like, oh, my gosh, I you know, I'm working with this. With this fella, turned out to be it was Guy Bluford, as a matter of fact, uh, the first uh, Black American uh, astronaut. I'm working with fella, and I'm just absolutely in awe of him, mm. <laughs> not because of who I am now but who i used to be and, and i would turn into little sunny hickam just in a just with with a snap of the fingers uh so so i was still very much uh, in all of uh, the folks who had who had gone through the apollo program uh, put uh men on the moon and done all these things so i came in just as the shuttle started to fly which was a great time to come in um, the astronaut corps was opening up then uh, men and women uh, w- were all coming in. And so it was all kind of a, a brand new thing. And it's always good to get a, get in on a program that's just starting because mm-hmm. you can kind of invent wh- how you're going to do it. And you don't just end up turning a crank. Uh, this is the way that we've always done it. You get to invent it. And so and so that's a lot of fun. So I really just had a passion for that and uh, uh, I ended up um, going and uh, working an awful lot in this big tank of water uh, here in Huntsville, Alabama, called a Neutral Buoyancy uh, Simulator, 75 feet across, 40 feet deep. I got to wear the spacesuit and go in and and do all of the procedures before the real astronauts came up and did it. And um, then I ended up going to Japan, and that was so much fun. For three years, um, I spent about two years out of the, out of three years um, uh, that. Um, uh, over in Japan, training the first Japanese astronaut. So I got to write about that, too. And that was just so much fun.
0: Tell us about that experience as well. I mean, it's in the, the way you write about it is so interesting. But tell us about it.
1: Well, I had to. I was kind of walking on eggshells. You might have got that out of it. Um, I didn't want to be critical of anyone. You know, when you write a memoir, if you start, if you start criticizing everybody and saying, "Well, I was right and they were wrong." Pretty soon, people are just not going to stop reading it. So, ultimately, you have to really study yourself and go, "Why did this go wrong?" And really bring bring back that you were part of the reason that that maybe some things went wrong. And and that's what you want to bring out and and not criticize anybody else. So over in Japan, what we had was a clash of cultures. And um, it was with the way that our astronauts were used to being treated uh, as versus the way the Japanese perceived them. Japanese perceived um, the astronauts as students and therefore they treated them like students. And they brought in their most august uh, professors uh, to to train, to teach rather than train. We, we think more of training and they, they think more of teaching. And so um, we had uh, some astronauts who really didn't like that, that they felt like that they were being uh, treated as, uh, as just grade school students or something like that and resisted it uh, much to the consternation of the Japanese. And so I was the training manager. And so I, I got caught in between Fortunately, I had uh, a young woman who had been assigned by the Japanese as my assistant, uh, Hoshika was her name, and um, she was there to advise me and tell me who I needed to apologize to, (laughs) to, (laughs) how I needed to apologize. And um, And maybe perhaps what I should do to solve this, because I wasn't going to solve the clash of cultures instantly. Um, So I had to walk a very fine line uh, between that, but uh, between them. But ultimately, uh, we had a very, very successful mission. And uh, I I am thankful to this day to uh, to have had that um, uh, Hoshiko there to advise me and uh, really look after me during that time.
0: You mentioned when you got to NASA, you were in awe of the people you got to work with, particularly astronauts. And I wonder, looking back, what you think it was that propelled you um, from Colwood through this incredible life, that's basically makes you the Dosakis man, the most interesting man in the world. I mean, you, you, you have you've seen the world and you've done so many incredible things. What do you think it was about uh, your experiences or your uh, just your mentality that propelled you through these incredible, incredible adventures?
1: Well, it um, might have been uh, somehow I tapped into the pent up ambition of my mom, mm-hmm. who always wanted to do everything, but w- wasn't able to do it based on who she was and where she was and um, uh, living in that little town and, and being a woman of the 30s and the 40s, you know, and, and so on. So you weren't really allowed to do that. So I, I think maybe I had uh, she was kind of putting inside of me uh, her own pent up expectations and hopes and dreams for life. Uh, Also, because um, I was uh, I mean, uh, she also um, taught me to read barely when I was barely five and and I read so much about life outside Colwood and the adventures other people had and so on. So I think all of that was just kind of pent up inside of me that uh, once I got out on my own. It just I just something that I just felt like that I I really, really wanted to do new things. And I just have this kind of passion that builds up inside of me that um, I can't really control. Uh, I mean, I can, but I don't want to. And especially if it's a positive thing. Um, I mean, I don't write about this in uh, in this uh, memoir, uh, but I, I'm saving it for the next, I guess. And one of my more recent passions is uh, paleontology, mm-hmm. uh, especially dinosaurs. And so I've gone out for 20 years out to Montana and hunted uh, Hunted dinosaur bones of the Cretaceous. And so far, my little team, uh, we found uh, five T-Rexes so far and any number of hadrosaurs and triceratops. And that's just so much fun, uh, you know, to do. So I I always just say uh, one of the one of the blessings that that I want to give to people is that I hope you always have an adventure in your life, because if you don't have that, then, you know, it, you're kind of maybe um, not enjoying life as much as you have. So adventures are what you make of them. And uh, when you see one, though, uh, no matter how scared you are about it, just grab hold of it and and uh, have fun with it.
0: I just think your story is so important to the story of 20th century America because it was all about discovery. And when you talk about paleontology, you're talking about discovery. When you talk about diving, it's about discovery. When you talk about space, it's about discovery. And I, I wanted to ask, one of the things I wanted to ask you most, actually, is if you worry that America has lost that sort of lust for discovery um, and that that drive for it. Do you do you think, as Ross Dothat of the New York Times has uh, theorized, that we've hit this time of this period of decadence that that isn't pushing us? In the same ways that uh, we were be- we were pushing ourselves in the twentieth century.
1: Yeah, I don't know. Every time I I start thinking that, and uh, then I I, I get um, the example of somebody like Elon Musk, <laughs> 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 who just throws out everything the way everything's been done, and just plunges in with all his money. <laughs> Yeah, right. And <laughs> just changes the whole dynamic of everything with the uh, SpaceX and Tesla and all, all of those. So now I think, you, you know, the, the 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 trick really for the United States is, yeah, I mean, we are uh, we, uh, somewhat decadent society if you look at it from the outside. But I think most people on the inside uh, are not. And uh, still adhere mostly to the old ways uh, of life, and believe in the old ways of life, and proud of who they are, stand up for what they believe, keep their families together, you know, trust in God, but rely on themselves. So I, I think that there's still a lot of strength and power in uh, the people that don't end up very much on the news and are not rarely quoted or paid attention to. And I guess maybe that's one of the reasons that that. I, I have a big fan base of, of those very people you know who like to read about some of the things that I've done and they know that i I really uh, really share their values but the trick is that you have freedom you got to have freedom mm-hmm. um I mean Elon couldn't be doing all he would be doing somebody uh in the government they just didn't pay attention to him I'm sure they would have would have crushed him by but he <laughs> yeah. snuck up on him. <laughs> what do you and, uh, what do you think and, about
0: the collaboration between Elon and NASA?
1: Well, I think that was pretty good. I mean, uh, Elon's smart. He knows that NASA has a big uh, bucket of money, and uh, they don't always spend it very well. But um, he, he he was smart to get in on the uh, when they did have a big bucket for commercial uh, uh, lift, uh, uh, lift categories of rockets and, uh, also putting, uh, uh, astronauts in space. And so, uh, yeah, he, he tapped into that and that's a good thing. Um, I think that, uh, SpaceX would like to break free a little bit if they could, and uh, we'll see how that goes. I mean, you, you really, when you're under, uh, and properly so, to a certain extent. You know, when you're under a certain bureaucratic controls, like the Federal Aviation Administration and NASA and so on, uh, you want to figure out what are their rules and regulations, and then get around them as best you can. <laughs> you know, and that's one of the things I learned, you know, working for the Army for all those years and NASA for all those years, is that okay? You got to figure out what are the rules. Um, what are people really, what are the people over you, what do they really care about? And then you go get the job done, um, however you can.
0: If you were a teenager right now, would, uh, Homer Hickam as a teenager in 2021 be really excited about Mars? Uh,
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> i'm a moon guy <laughs> right, right i'm a moon guy because and i'll tell you why i'm all for mars mars is great but, but the robots are doing a good job on mars right now the reason that i like the moon so much is that uh, i see it as a place that where we can go get resources it's right there it's real close by we know how to get there i just want to go up there and mind the blame thing because i think that uh, i know that it's covered with um, with resources that we need uh, rare earth materials Right now, that we can only get out of China, Uh, thorium for uh, nuclear reactors, uh, helium-3 for possible fusion reactors. So there's a lot of things, a lot of work to be done on the moon that actually. Um, I, I don't know that any politician, no matter what their stripe, can complain about if we start bringing lots of money back from the moon and in, in terms of resources. And also, we start creating jobs, uh, not only on the moon, but supporting the people that are on the moon, the the miners and plumbers and electricians and all that that are going to be needed up there. So so I'm real, real enthusiastic about the moon. Mars is great. It's I look at Mars, it's sort of like Antarctica. It's interesting. And we probably ought to go there somewhere along the line and study it real closely. But ultimately for the economy and for our country, I think the future uh, for the next century really ought to be the moon.
0: Are you interested in going on one of the commercial flights? Yes. Yes. (laughs) any plans, any immediate plans?
1: I have been asked by one of them if I would go. And I said, absolutely. And they said, well, you're on the list. And I went, how long is that list? (laughs) He wouldn't tell me. So I don't know. I mean, I'm here. They know my phone number. And uh, so uh, I would love to go.
0: So one of the things that's so important, I think, about Rocket, about October Sky, about Rocket Boys, is it gives this depiction of adventurism that is sort of sort of childhood adventurism that I think gets lost in the, the helicopter parent world. Do you think yeah. that they would have been able to take Rocket Boys and turn it into October Sky? today, um, given all of the sort of cultural anxieties and fears about parenting and political correctness. I mean, you had free reign. You had freedom, as you say, in a way that I think a lot of kids aren't afforded now.
1: Yeah, it'd be pretty difficult. I mean, almost everything we did uh, was even then illegal. Uh, So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so so um uh nah, it would be hard but but there are other ways, you know, that that you can you can still have adventures and um and get involved. One of the things uh, one of the places, great places uh, to do that is at space camp here in Huntsville and I'm on the board. And so, um, you come into space camp and it's not entirely scripted. Uh, you learn a whole lot, but you're in with your peers. And, uh, it's really great to see young people come in who maybe have been picked on their whole lives for being too smart. You know how that goes. And, uh, they come into space camp and, and, uh, all of a sudden they're with their peers. And it, it's, it's a credit to you if you're too smart. And, um, and watch them have the adventure there for for a whole week and make new friends and uh, really uh, open up a lot of things and by the way parents are not allowed (laughs) <laughs> and we take their cell phones away. <laughs> they can call at night. They can. We give them the cell phone back, and they can call their parents. And that lasts for like maybe two nights. And after that, they don't want it. They don't want to talk to the parents. They're having way too much fun and learning way too much uh, uh, information and and meeting uh, lots of new friends and everything. So that's one way. One way to do it um but uh, yeah it is it is somewhat constrained uh, today compared to the way that i had it back in the 50s
0: you were experimenting and having adventures with technology before it, the internet and before social media. Um, and I think there were a lot of kids who are, are having fun coding and having fun tinkering yep. in similar ways. But do you worry that in the, the age of social media, there's so much temptation to kind of get sucked into that and distracted from actually what's behind it, what makes it, what makes it tick?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, um, especially for for young people that get addicted on on like the gaming and so on that's on the Internet and and that kind of thing. Um, I mean, if you're writing the games, that's great i mean you know that's great that shows entrepreneurship and you're learning coding and all that kind of thing uh no but there are you know there are a lot of there are a lot of things out there that um that kids can do today that's that's new robotics there's always something new that you can do in robotics and and programming and 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 that kind of thing but also i mean that's all wonderful and good i like that but i really think kids need to get outside Mm -hmm. um and they need to to discover some outdoor passion as well. I mean, um, I mean, if you're if you're uh, scientifically oriented, STEM oriented, I mean, go out and learn what are those rocks in the backyard? You know, down in the creek, what are those? Um, What are the trees? What what are everything? So I think you've got to go both ways. It's not only using the new computer systems that we have, all the new technologies we have to develop new things. But also remember, we are We are of nature and and once we if we try to divorce ourselves from nature, I think that we become sadder human beings. We don't really we don't really understand who we are or what we are. So you got to get out outside and do some physical activity. And again, if you're scientifically oriented, then just study geology, study the trees, study animals, um, study the seas. Um, and, And you don't have to say, well, that's the only thing I'm doing. Because you can combine almost everything. You you love like loving the ocean. I got you know really involved with um, photography and uh, and all of that. Uh, so you you kind of combine that, and then that that led ultimately the diving ultimately led into something that I could use at NASA to train astronauts. So you never never quite know. But I, I don't think you should. I don't think any young person should just f- focus on one thing. They they need to. They need to expand their horizons in every way they can.
0: When uh, Hollywood took Rocket Boys and made October Sky, I think it was one of the few times they really got um, the the middle of America correct on the silver screen. And I want to ask about how that, process played out for you. you. You mentioned you're hired as a consultant and you write about this in the book, but that does seem to be one of the takeaways of the last like half decade in American politics and culture. It's just that we, we don't understand each other. If you grow up between the coasts versus if you grow up on the coast, it's just a very, very different experience um, and increasingly so. What was it like making sure that Hollywood got Colwood right?
1: Well, that was always the question: whether they would or not. Um, Louis Colek wrote the screenplay, and Louis is from Brooklyn, <laughs> and uh, grew, up in, <laughs> grew up in Brooklyn. And but he was considered still, is considered an A-list writer, so they really, really wanted him. So um, they laid it on me, the producer Chuck Gordon, who did who produced Field of Dreams, um, uh, and so I knew that he was going to produce a quality production, but I didn't know and he and, you know whether he would be able to capture uh, colwood or not um but he really wanted lewis so um i talked to lewis on the phone and it looked like there for a while that he was no i don't want to do this i don't understand what life would be like in this little town and and i just don't get it but i started talking to him about what life was like in his neighborhood mm. and i said you know when you were out playing um could you get away with very much without your parents know about it? no, we couldn't do it and i said yeah it's like it's like somehow um there's this uh unseen telegraph that's sending back signals to your parents and and everybody was involved with everybody else's business and and pretty soon we saw that there were uh, a lot of similarities between growing up in the inner city community. Um, and, uh, and growing up in Colwood. So he, he started getting it at that point. There was still a lot of, I think, um, pressure, uh, from the studio to make Colwood a lot poorer and the people in it a lot poorer than, than they really were. Mm. Uh, when I read the first script, I went, Lewis, Lewis, we did have shoes and we ate regularly, <laughs> 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 you know? So, um, but, uh, I got it. He had to sell the script first to the studio and then the studio ponies up the money to the producer and then the producer and chooses the director who chooses the actors. And then they go off and make the movie that they wanted to make anyway. And that's what they did. And October Sky, it really um, I did fret about it uh, some. But when I saw the first edit, I knew, oh, you really got this. This is great. And um, it is still so beloved today. Um, it's just amazing uh, the people that we hear so many people, of course, I mean, it just astonishes me, astonishes me when I hear that somebody hasn't seen it, but I have to remember people are starting to grow up, you know, this movie is 20, over 20 years old. So they suddenly see it on cable TV. It's all over cable all the time. Um, and uh, they see it. And it's like, it's all so brand new to them. And it's like, boom, you know, it just explodes in their brain and they start writing and we we'll have all these questions. And of course we go, you know, well, read the book and, <laughs> and the other books and so on. But, um, but yeah, they ultimately did a, I think um, Chuck Gordon uh, the producer and Joe Johnston, the director, the actors, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal, Chad Lindbergh, uh, Chris Owen, um, uh, Natalie Canaday, uh, Chris Cooper, they all, uh, Laura Dern, they fell in love with, uh, with making this movie. And uh, yeah, I think it shows on screen.
0: Yeah, it really, really came through. Um, As somebody who comes from that background and has traveled in a lot of very powerful, uh, maybe you can even say cosmopolitan circles over the course of your life, is that something that you realized these cultural differences were becoming more and more salient over time?
1: Well, um, I have to say that wherever I went, and I think you probably find this is true, too, you get along with people. Um, I mean, uh, people from smaller towns and out in the hinterlands um we tend to be a little bit more open i think sometimes uh, maybe it's because we haven't been slapped on the side of the head by living in a big city big busy city so much <laughs> and i think i think other people they really um they just feel that i mean I've i've been all over the world i mean I've been, you know, in Paris, you know, theoretically one of the most unfriendly cities in the world. I've never had any trouble. People just seem to like me a lot. And I like them. It's all great. You know, it's great. And uh, New York and L.A. and everywhere else, even Moscow, when I went over there. And uh, we were negotiating for the International Space Station. Um I figured out, uh, well, across the table from me were the same men who had launched Sputnik, which started everything for me in a lot of ways. So I could have been kind of awestruck about that, except they were so uh, dour <laughs> 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 and unhappy because the Soviet Union had just fallen, you know. <laughs> and uh, so I I picked up pretty quick that in Russia the way that you um uh, no business is really done in, in meetings mm-hmm. that's where you 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 just uh want to snarl each other <laughs> that's what they do uh where the business gets done is in the party after and they have a party after every meeting <laughs> so, and the vodka starts to flow right and so then you got to open up to um to them, and I did. I started in the first place, I wasn't all about it, and I started telling them how important Sputnik was to me and how not only me, but my, they hadn't really heard this. Mm-hmm. Um, the, our whole generation of young Americans back in the 1950s were inspired by them by the Russians, by what they had done. Now, we didn't like their their government or anything like that, but we really liked their rockets and their, their satellites. And uh, they liked that a lot. And so um, they started to just uh, come to me and say well you know homer we 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 will do this what you want us to do you know but we can't say it directly but you know we'll put words in that and i'm going this is great so let me tell you more about growing up in coal. <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic and, yeah so uh so i think uh you know that's what you have to be you have to be open to people and realize ultimately you know people are are, are people and no matter where they come from or anything else um you strip away a lot of the stuff away from them and you make a connection and uh, and it's really just a a good thing for all for everybody
0: there's been a surge of interest in uh, UAPs and UFOs in recent years are you at all surprised by that I mean the the release of the videos from the Navy was a huge moment um, that catalyzed a lot of this and kind of gave you major media outlets permission to cover it and politicians permission to sort of talk about it more and more but are you surprised about anything that's come out recently
1: well, you know, it's interesting. Um, uh, I've lived in some places that have uh, big skies, uh, like out in Montana and Utah and uh, down in the Virgin Islands. And uh, if you start looking up in the sky, you start seeing some some strange things out there. A lot of times they can be explained uh, meteorolo- meteorologically and, and uh, uh, you know, weather related and, and that kind of thing. But some that you can't. So I'm interested. I don't know. I don't really. I don't know uh, what these things are. And um, so it's kind of fun to to imagine what it could be. It may not be creature, intelligent creatures from space. It could be, you know, things happening in a different dimension um, that uh, occasionally we lap over into uh, and and see things that um, are not in in our timeline and our dimension. So all that's uh, really interesting to speculate and to imagine. Um, What it can be.
0: Homer, you've been really generous with your time. I have one more question, and it's about how all of these experiences in your life uh, have shaped and strengthened, or maybe even weakened at certain points, your faith.
1: Well, my faith is very strong. I I have a, a strong sense that there is a greater entity in charge of all of us i've had way too many coincidences in my life that could not possibly be coincidental that have come along and either saved me or allowed me to go do something or maybe kept me from doing something that i really shouldn't have uh i think that entity um and i i think i think of that entity as as god um of the of the old bible Uh, i think i think he or she has a sense of humor Hmm. and uh, every once in a while that sense of humor comes out to our consternation and we get kind of you know shook up a little bit Um, but we have to just accept the fact that uh, this is what's happened and uh, work our way through it and ultimately uh, uh, believe that um, we're all going to be taken care of in the end
0: homer hickam thank you so much for your time today thank you emily
1: it's great
0: of course. I can't recommend this book enough, especially for a Christmas present for uh, young men in your life. I think it would be a, a fantastic gift. It's called Don't Blow Yourself Up, The Further True Adventures and Travails of the Rocket Boy of October Sky. That's out now. Make sure to make sure to pick one up as a Christmas gift or even just for yourself. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. We will be back soon with more. Until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray.
1: The faint voice of reason.